0: Bob Simpson and Estelle Carroll have been together for almost 50 years. They have two children. Before he retired, Bob was a high school history teacher. He taught world history, European history, and modern American history. Estelle is a graphic designer, devoting her considerable talent to not only paying clients, but also to non-paying clients, such as the Women's Liberation Union in the 1970s. And today, she runs Herstory an online history project about second-wave feminism in Chicago. Estelle hasn't retired. She continues to work from home as a prolific graphic designer. For decades, in addition to their formal employment, Bob and Estelle also spent hours each week combining their talents to produce political cartoons. Bob conceptualized the cartoons, and Estelle drew them. Their cartoons were syndicated, appearing often in labor and general publications. They also published a graphic history of the United States titled, The Incredible Shrinking American Dream. They published under the byline, Carol Simpson. In 2016, after decades of their productive, personal and political collaboration, Bob had a stroke. Their active lives changed instantly. Their political cartooning, at least for now, has ended. Bob continues to recover and Estelle is his primary caretaker. They share their story.
1: I actually don't remember the stroke. I was visiting Knoxville, Tennessee. There was a friend of mine there named Chris. And Chris and I planned to go hiking in the Smoky Mountains. I was sitting in her uh, kitchen. And all of a sudden, she told me this, because I don't remember it. All of a sudden, my face went all weird and I collapsed my head onto the kitchen table. And the next thing that I remember after just sitting there talking with her was waking up on her kitchen floor with uh, four or five people in white uniforms, who were obviously medical people, but then I sat immediately all peering down at me and talking to each other. I heard the word stroke. I said, Oh no, I'm having a stroke. I wasn't scared as much as I was annoyed because I'd come all the way to hike in the Smoky Mountains and said I was going to be going to the hospital with a stroke. So they got me into the ambulance and got me to the nearest hospital, which happened to be. I really caught a lot of luck that day because before I got to Chris. This kitchen. We've been hiking in the woods, not in the mountains, and I didn't have a stroke in the forest, which would have been much more complicated. And they got me to the nearest hospital, which had a stroke specialty. So when I got to the emergency room, they they just jumped on it. They knew exactly what to do and shot me up full of you know blood thinners or whatever else that the protocol was. And there I was in this hospital in Knoxville, and. I stayed there for, what, maybe a couple of weeks?
2: Yeah, a couple of weeks.
0: These days, Estelle often verifies Bob's memory for him or gently corrects him when he misremembers a past event. Estelle eventually arranged for a medical van to drive Bob from Knoxville back home to
1: Chicago. I just remember a long, bumpy ride. I had a rather weird experience. I closed my eyes I could see this vast expanse of blue in front of me, like a sky blue almost. My mind told me that was death. All I had to do was step into it and I would die. I wasn't scared, actually. I was just curious. This is really weird. Is that how people die with a big blue sky in front of them? Then I felt somebody tapping on my shoulders, repeating, stay with me, man, stay with me. It was the EMT in the back, and he was getting a little concerned. I guess maybe he'd seen that expression before. I don't know. So I opened my eyes, and there was this wonderfully concerned, serious EMT. So I thought to myself, I don't want to spoil this guy's day by dying in his ambulance, so I'd better find my will to live. So I guess I did, and here
0: I am. After arriving in Chicago, Bob was admitted to the Rehabilitation Institute, where he stayed for well over a month.
1: I was doing both physical and kind of a mental therapy, a cognitive therapy. Cognitive therapy at the RIC outpost was, believe it or not, a lot of board games and card games. We had to strategize. We did a lot of scrabble together with the other patients. That were there. The physical things were mostly walking with a heavy walker and a, a quad cane. Quad cane is like a regular cane, only it's got four of the feet at the bottom. Somebody alongside of me, they could give me walking practice and getting on and out of the wheelchair safely from the uh cane walking to the wheelchair. And they would set up these traffic cones, Zor's traffic cones into a complicated pattern. And they would say, Okay, Bob walk through the pattern and don't knock the cone over. That was when I was doing without somebody holding on. So that was like really great therapy for me. And if I just did it slowly, I didn't knock any cones over. I guess if I knocked a bunch of cones over from the beginning and then stopped knocking them over, I would have been considered improving. But one of the things they kept telling me that the therapy was, okay, Bob, When we walked down the hallway, can you do it a little faster? He wants you to keep your house? Because the uh, expectation was that you'd have to sell the house to pay for the medical care.
0: Or maybe they were afraid that you wouldn't be able to live in your second-floor apartment anymore, that you would have to buy a new house um, that was just one floor.
2: That's what they meant,
0: yeah. What they were saying was that they wanted you to get back to what your life was before. That's essentially what they meant.
1: Yeah, I really liked it. They were very nice people, and uh, I thought the therapy was really helping. And they had some exercise machines there also, which I was able to use, including a treadmill, which was very challenging. I had to hold on to the bar on the side. I couldn't just do it like most people might do. It was real good exercise.
0: It sounds like it might have been incredibly frustrating as well, though. Has it been frustrating for you?
1: Yeah, it is very frustrating. Yeah, my left side is still kind of a a mess. My uh, left arm doesn't work very well. My left hand doesn't work well. My left foot, left leg doesn't work well. So even when I walk with a cane and have somebody beside me, I always feel I'm gonna lose my balance. My brain keeps saying you're about to lose your balance the person next to me just saying, Bob, oh, you're doing fine. Go figure, you know.
0: So your brain is sending you messages that are not necessarily accurate.
1: Yeah, that was one of the first things I noticed is I couldn't trust any messages coming from my brain. Sometimes they'd be right, and sometimes they'd be wrong. And I learned how to function in the wheelchair and how to get in and out of it safely. He did a lot of walking around with a cane in and in a hemi walker.
0: Before the stroke, Bob had been photographing demonstrations for various activist groups in Chicago. He became a well-known presence. And after his stroke, activists in Chicago soon heard that Bob was in the hospital.
1: People started visiting me. I actually got a call from Karen Lewis, president of the teachers' union. Called me and said, Bob, do everything your therapists tell you to do, to get your health back. That was like a real morale booster to get a call from Karen Lewis. She's probably the best known labor leader in Chicago.
0: Bob and Estelle live in a building that, in Chicago, is called a two flat. They live on the second floor. Their tenant lives on the first floor. I asked Estelle what she had to do to their building to accommodate Bob as she planned for his release from rehab.
2: We did it in stages. Uh, First, we uh, cleared out our bedroom. We took the bed out and, um, and we replaced it with a hospital bed and a desk and his computer. So... I no longer had a bedroom, because that was his room now. So then I had to set up the, uh, one of the kids' rooms, playroom, in the attic as my bedroom. Uh, and then he came home, and then a little while after that, we installed a mechanical device with a chair that goes up and down the stairs, and we had to install three of them one on the exterior stairs up to the porch, one and then two more inside on the, because our stairs had two sections. So we have three chair lifts installed in our, up to the second floor. And then we had to put in the, the raised up contraption that you do for disabled people on the toilet and the bathroom. Then we had to put all these grab bars in several locations in the bathroom.
0: Bob, you've described what inspired you to get going again, but I do know the physical therapy has been kind of self-limiting. Explain a little bit about what kind of adjustments you've made to the limitations of your body and the ways life has changed
1: for you. I can't walk around by myself. I have to wear a safety belt and have somebody next to me. So I don't get out a whole lot. So... Basically, I had to learn that I wasn't going to be able to do the things that I would normally do, like bike riding and hiking. That took some mental adjustment. But fortunately, uh, I was assigned a mental health counselor. She was very helpful. So I spent a lot of time interacting with people on social media, do a lot of reading. That's pretty much my life.
0: It sounds isolating.
1: It is isolating. It is isolating. In the warm months, we could have visitors outside, though, which we did a few times. That was nice. But now it's covered with snow and sub-zero temperatures. That's that's not very nice.
0: You don't collaborate in cartooning anymore, do you?
1: I've been trying to collect our old cartoons and put keywords on them so we can put them into a website and have people find them that way. So I think once we get the old cartoons back up on the website, we're going to start creating new ones. The way we did our original cartoons was we never did them about specific events. We did them about issues. So I could do stuff on unemployment or the environment. And these, these would not get old fast. The cartoon would have a longer lifespan.
0: So, you don't really mind missing the Trump era because you never were very specific in your cartoons anyway.
1: Right, yeah. A lot of the cartoons we did earlier would be relevant to the Trump era because the same issues were involved, but not the same personalities.
0: Despite having to spend most of his time at home, especially during Chicago winters and now because of the pandemic, Bob, like all of us, has the internet to help him avoid social isolation.
1: And I belong to a Facebook stroke survivors group, which is helpful because, you know, we, we kind of hold each other up and ask questions and get tips on how to do certain things. And most of it's just emotional support, I think, more than anything else. That's been a very successful thing for me.
0: Do you communicate with the support group almost every day?
1: Yes, yeah, just about. It's a very active group. Apparently there's a lot of strokes out there. And I always remind myself that strokes sometimes kill people, Not very often kill people. I'm still here kicking, you know. <laughs>
0: asked Estelle to to describe what her life has been like as Bob's primary caretaker.
2: I've always been a multitasker, and I've always had multiple projects, you know, constantly taking me from one to the other and back and forth, and I've always been, uh, you know, a rebel, and I don't follow the authorities' instructions, so I have to constantly, I've always been researching and finding new methods.
0: So, Estelle explains, figuring out how best to care for Bob became her latest new project among her usual string of projects.
2: And so, I researched the latest methods for various problems that stroke people have. I wouldn't listen to the doctors because they wanted to give him stuff that didn't work, uh, repeatedly that didn't work. So, I just abandoned that. I get to read all of my Uh, alternative medicine, holistic medicine uh, articles. And so I'm not burnt out at all.
0: So you've really used this as an opportunity just to expand your knowledge.
2: Yes, right. Especially my nutrition knowledge and my herbal remedy knowledge and my exercise knowledge.
0: Bob, it sounds like you've come to look at the positive. You don't sit around feeling sorry for yourself.
1: I try to make jokes about it actually. Like my last Facebook status was Estelle just went out to shovel snow. But since wheelchairs don't have snow plows, I can't help her very much.
2: He likes that
1: joke. it's his latest joke. Or people will say, Okay, let's roll and I say, I'm all set, you know, let's roll, you know.
0: Is there any more that a physical therapist can do to help Bob?
2: The main reason that he's been deteriorating over the four years is because Medicare wouldn't pay for the uh, physical therapy that actually was tremendously helping him. They just cut him off. And then uh, I tried to get friends to help him with the exercises that they had prescribed. They're, they, they the, the original set of, of therapists gave him a whole bunch of exercises that were pretty much impossible for him to do by himself. And then I hired a new set of therapists to give him exercises that he could do by himself because it's pretty, and, and that the friends could help him with, uh, but then the friends couldn't come to the house anymore because of COVID. So he's stuck mostly doing his exercises by himself and he doesn't really do a really good job of it. And, uh, And I can't spend, like, you know, a huge amount of time forcing him to do exercises that are tiring. Most of the problem is that he's just exhausted and tired all the time, and that's due to lack of physical activity. That's what happens to people who just lie in bed all day. How much
0: physical therapy will Medicare pay for?
2: After he came home, they paid for three months of intensive physical therapy at an outpatient clinic, which was amazingly wonderful, really, really, really helpful to him, that they paid for three months of that, maybe a little more, uh, and then they cut him off completely, and then um, they wouldn't pay for any more, and then he deteriorated. The rules of Medicare are that you have to be constantly improving if they're gonna spend more money on uh, therapy, can't just maintain the level that you've reached.
0: Bob's cognitive deficits since the stroke have been frustrating. He still remembers his many impressive talents and how he put them to good use. You
1: well, know, before the stroke, I built websites and had pretty good computer skills, and, and I lost some cognitive. I know I did coming home. But I had to relearn just most basic computer stuff, just operating the computer. That's just building a website for crying
0: So, Bob, you're describing what you could do before. You could build entire websites, and now that's impossible for you to do. It's not just the physical manifestation of the stroke. It's limitations on your general abilities.
1: I used to help Estelle with her business. I'd help her build the websites that she was designing. There's no way in the world I could do that now. One thing... A- didn't get knocked out. was I, I can still read. And I can read things like novels and books of history and I read poetry. That's been really great for me. And I find that reading poetry is an amazing mental therapy because it really builds a lot my morale I like to be surrounded by beauty. And this room was not particularly beautiful all this junk that's in and all these bottles of pills and whatever. So if I can read a poem that in words surrounds me with PBA, that's really a big break for me.
0: Bob is especially grateful for Estelle's care, companionship,
1: and patience. I just want to say that Estelle has been wonderful. I, I often feel guilty because when she invited me to come to from, from Washington D.C. area to Chicago, this wasn't the life I was expecting for her. But it's the life we've got, so. She's been wonderful and just so supportive and couldn't ask for a better caregiver.
0: I mean, you're saying it wasn't the life you expected, but you guys have been together almost 50 years now. So a good portion of your life was exactly what you expected and built and hoped for. Um, You know, at some point, all of us become disabled if we live long enough. I realized it happened to you relatively young but you and Estelle have lived a really vibrant life together for most of the time you've been together.
1: And I'm always reminded that when we actually we finally got legally married in a in an Unitarian minister's uh, living room, said grew up Unitarian. That's a typical Unitarian thing to do, you know, get married in some of living room. Remember the, the words, you know, in sickness and in health. This woman sitting next to me, Estelle, takes those words very seriously.
0: Estelle, you deserve... I mean, what we should do is give you, give you a standing ovation right now. Don't, don't take those words oh, from Bob Lightly. Yeah.
2: No, I, I'm not the perfect caregiver. Sometimes I, I, I have a tremendous amount of stress on me because of all my clients and all my projects and taking care of the house and the finances and all you know, my tenants and all the stuff. So sometimes I just get over... I go over the edge and I just can't take it anymore. And so, you know, sometimes I'll get impatient with him when it's not his fault. It's my life that's doing it. So I'm not the perfect caregiver by any means.
1: We have a saying here between us. Nobody's perfect. Nothing is perfect. So I'm not a perfect patient. I remember reading one time, I was reading about these two... Uh, Zen Buddhist monks who were in the hospital, they saw it as part of their responsibility was to be, to be good Buddhists and support the medical people who came to take care of them. And I always kind of thought about their example as how I wanted, how the kind of patient I wanted to be. You want to take care of your medical people as a patient. It's a, it's a reciprocal thing.
2: It's a really, really horrible time right now for everybody. You no, know, and I don't think that my life is any worse than uh, most people going through the COVID pandemic and the food insecurity and the, and the young people going through unknown futures and, and you know, uh, college debt, I mean, stress. People are all people are going through a horrible time right now.
1: I find myself signing a lot of online petitions. That's about the only kind of activism that I can do that makes even a small amount of sense. Throw me a petition about climate change or whatever, Mm -hmm. and I'll sign it. Mm -hmm.
2: I'm usually very optimistic about everything. What's interesting is that the COVID disaster, the COVID crisis, for somebody like me who always tries to find the positive in every disaster or situation and use it as an opportunity. I've found several incredible opportunities because of COVID. One is the Deep Roots Project, which I started about four or five years ago before Bob's Stroke uh, to teach people how to grow their own food in their yards. Growing your own food has exploded totally because of COVID, because there's food insecurity. so. COVID has pushed the food crisis, which we had before, but it just made it more apparent to most of the people, more people. And then the other thing that COVID did, which is incredible, is for my other pet uh, activist project, which is the the Chicago Women's Liberation Union Her Story Archive, website archive of the history of second wave feminism in Chicago. But now, since COVID, the amount, number of people who are excited about feminism is even more exaggerated and exploding than ever before. Not just because of the Me Too movement, but because so many more women are losing their, their jobs than men, and they're forced to stay home, and they have to sit home with kids who can't go to school, and they have, then they do most of the, the kid taking care of, and the kids are, you know. It's just really oppressive to a lot of women now. So the the feminist movement is also getting new fire and energy. So there's always an opportunity behind every crisis.
0: While Bob's stroke did change life as Bob and Estelle knew it, their strong relationship, built over the many decades they've lived and worked together and supported each other, has made the adjustment easier. And Bob remains hopeful that his physical skills and mental acuity will continue to improve. But as Estelle noted, if we had a healthcare system that was more continually attentive to the needs of stroke survivors, then patients, their families, and society would benefit immeasurably. Lifespan is a production of WOEB Public Media. I'm Jackie Wolf, professor of social medicine at Ohio University, and the executive producer and host of Lifespan. Adam Rich is our producer, audio engineer, and audio editor. Join us next month when we discuss the crucial role that medical
2: translators can play in the healthcare system.